Biology. I'm Greg Muller, the instructor for this course. In today's lecture, Absorption of Toxicants, what we're going to do is try to talk about this progression of toxicology sources, pathways, receptors, and controls. I like to talk about this in terms of a sequence, and in fact, the absorption of toxicants is in that first stage where we have a source of a toxicant and we actually have a, the initiation of a pathway. We cross that fundamental threshold uh, from chemistry to biology. As we do this cross, we'll have to know about some of the structures, uh, the routes, for example, of intoxication, and that's perhaps the major point of today's lecture. Our learning objectives, what we're going to do is try to describe some of the ways in which toxicants interact with cells. What are we but cells and collections of cells which are in fact collections of chemicals and biochemicals? And so if we have a chemical, a toxicant, actually going to interact, how does this interact with these fundamental structures and substructures? We're going to recognize how the molecular characteristics of toxicant affect its entrance into a cell. And we're going to try to explain some human anatomy. This is not an anatomy course, but I want to give you some briefing here in lecture and also in our textbooks of how uh, toxicology is related to the integumentary, respiratory, and digestive systems, the three major modes of intoxication or pathways of intoxication. We're going to try to summarize these routes of toxicant absorption as well. Well, it's easy for us to kind of understand the organization of the body because in a certain sense, especially in the macro sense, uh, it's a part of us. It's who we are. But what we'd like to do is look at it in terms of the different levels of organization of the body. And so in terms of toxicology, we are very interested in the chemical level because toxicants are, are, are just that. They're chemicals. And so they interact on a very uh, direct basis with the chemicals and biochemicals that are in our life system. We then advance to the cellular system and then to the tissue level and the organ level and the organ system level, okay? Finally, that will maybe have a disease manifestation that affects the uh, entire individual. But we start off small. We start off in terms of our interactions uh, at the molecular level. And so we, we'd like to understand how this organism uh, organizes uh, from the molecular level on through up. Because if we have an effect at the smallest level, that can affect the demonstration of organization up through the whole life cycle. It's important for us to understand metabolism, the biosynthesis, as well as catabolism that's associated with the development of uh, the molecules of life. Uh, it's important that we understand that uh, these molecules of life start out as subunits and, uh, that are typically monomers and develop into polymers. So these subunits uh, are the raw chemicals, and sometimes we can have some substitutions or some impacts where a toxicant actually impacts uh, the subunit level. But then we have macromolecules, and some examples of those are saccharides to polysaccharides, glucose to glycogen, uh, amino acids uh, to proteins and nucleotides to DNA and RNA. And so interrupting this assembly of the biosynthesis uh, um, uh, of these polymers, these macromolecules, is a potential source of toxicosis. 
we can look in terms of the relative importance of some of these monomers and the polymers uh, if we examine uh, the composition of bacteria. And this table gives us uh, the, the uh, makeup uh, of E. coli in terms of some of these endpoints of biosynthesis. Uh, we all know that uh, percent of water is 70 or 80 percent in most, most light forms. It only accounts for one molecule. That's in contrast to proteins, which amount to about uh, 10 to 15 percent in various life forms that actually give us as much as 3,000 individual types of molecules. Great diversity in proteins. That should be a clue that, in fact, in terms of the mechanism of our body and all of the life uh, systems that we support, proteins have a specific, because of their diversity, have very specific roles and the potential to disrupt uh, is very high because there's so many of them. In terms of the molecules of life, nucleic acids, DNA and RNA, we have one DNA obviously, but in terms of RNA, RNA codes for specific proteins uh, and so we need at least as many RNAs as we have discrete proteins. And so we'll have more than 3,000 uh, RNAs. Polysaccharides, uh, in terms of percent of total weight, about uh, 3%, and there's about five or so different types of molecules. Lipids, uh, about 20 different types of molecules. Various building block molecules, sulfate, phosphates of those type, uh, about 500. And then various uh, ions, uh, uh, about uh, 20 different molecules. And so all of these tell us that, in fact, uh, in terms of the consequences of intoxication, uh, impacting proteins, uh, at least from a numerical point of view, we have a high probability of potentially disrupting uh, life processes. To understand uh, toxicology absorption, we need to have a basics in, uh, in biology and cell structure, and I'll take you back to your freshman, sophomore biology classes, perhaps even high school biology, uh, and reorient you that uh, in terms of the basic processes, we have the cell nucleus, the cell membrane, very important in terms of transport of chemicals into uh, a place within the cell that uh, perhaps these chemicals could do some damage. Uh, we have the ribosomes that uh, uh, enact uh, the uh, protein RNA coding. Uh, we have the cytoplasm, the internal uh, cellular fluids, the mitochondrion, which develop the energy for uh, cellular processes. But these are important things to know and understand. So a quick review of your biology uh, is probably going to helpful in terms of understanding toxicology. To refresh your, your uh, memories as well about the basic uh, uh, reproductive functions of the cell, um, in DNA we have the, um, in the nucleus, uh, we have DNA that is uh, performing replication. And that replication is allowing transcription of RNA uh, that actually leaves the nucleus uh, and allows for uh, a translocation process in the ribosomes to actually make these proteins which are essential to many different uh, biological processes. These proteins enter the cytoplasm and sometimes are released from the cell. Now these proteins uh, are typically uh, synthesized through a process called translation. Um, it actually, these perform uh, building block, uh, are actually uh, built from the building blocks called amino acids. Uh, these proteins are long chains of amino acids. Uh, they are uh, made up of peptide bonds and disulfide bonds. It's very important because 
all anytime we have an accumulation of structures or a buildup of structure, uh, a metabolism, if you will, we have a potential for toxic interaction. And so uh, in the building up of proteins, whether it be by uh, um, toxic peptides or by uh, compounds that interfere with the disulfide bonds and the protein conformation, these are potential aspects of toxicosis on a molecular basis. If we look at the role of proteins, and we will here in a moment, um, we can see that we can have dramatic effects from uh, miscoding of proteins. The primary structure of our proteins is referred to as sequence. Sometimes these uh, proteins are modified by various groups, heme groups, sugar groups, phosphates, and they give us the diversity that is, in fact, proteins. In terms of amino acids from your biology, remember that these are small molecules. I've given you a couple of them here just to give you an idea of what uh, cysteine, uh, alanine, uh, um, uh, look like. Uh, they give us an idea of what the subunits of proteins look like as we collect those together. Um, they spontaneously form these peptide bonds in amino acid chains. Uh, this particular uh, uh, chain I developed with some molecular modeling software, which is just based in terms of thermodynamics. Um, pretty much I just added one uh, amino acid after another uh, in kind of a chaotic array. What you notice is that they form long chains and they also have a substructure. And this substructure is identifiable a little bit with a, pro, uh, a space filling model of the protein uh, as these amino acid chains develop. You start seeing what amounts to uh, a helical coil. Um, and that helical coil um, is a secondary structure uh, in a protein. Uh, we'll also get some folding and some pleated sheets. Uh, we'll also get some uh, random coiling going on. But this gives us the dimensionality of proteins that is very important in terms of their presentation of receptors and active sites for various things like enzyme function, uh, receptor function. And it's very, very important that as we understand toxicology, we understand the chemical molecular basis of toxicology and we try to at least imagine this in three dimensions, even though our textbooks, our slides, are two-dimensional. On the website, uh, we have some links to some structural programs that uh, allow you to go in with certain uh, uh, macromolecules and actually grab them and rotate them. I invite you, in terms of resources and some of the challenges with this particular module, to go in and play with that structural software that is uh, available over the Internet to look at some of these databases of, of biological molecules to get a sense for this third dimension, uh, depth, so to speak, so that you kind of understand how chemicals relate to biochemicals. If we go back to our hemoglobin protein structure, again, this is a two-dimensional representation. And you can see the alpha coils here in terms of the protein substructure. But you can see that within this hemoglobin uh, protein structure, we have the heme groups. And here are the white dots in both of these cases, uh, the oxygen that, uh, that the heme group is, is using as, uh, to transport. And so this is important in terms of understanding the roles and relationships of intoxicating chemicals to the biochemicals uh, that make us up. Now, in terms of protein functions, we need to understand that there is a potential for disruption once we have uh, uh, absorption of a chemical uh, in terms of the primary phase of toxicosis. 
Um, protein functions are wide-ranging. We're going to go through a list here just to give you an idea of the complexity of these 3,000 or so uh, chemicals uh, that make up life forms. Uh, antibodies, uh, these are uh, proteins that recognize molecules of invading organism. They're very important in terms of immune function. Receptors are part of the cell membrane. They typically will re uh, recognize other proteins or chemicals uh, and somehow through some chemotaxis inform the cell. Uh, it'll tell them that the, to start a cascade of effects. If we look at things like uh, endocrine disruption in terms of uh, that particular toxicological effect, there's a receptor disruption. We have a, uh, proteins that function as enzymes that will assemble or digest uh, uh, other chemicals. We have uh, neurotransmitters or hormones that trigger receptors. We have structural proteins that form channels and pores within cells and support tissues. In terms of cellular absorption, uh, there are many different functions that happen in terms of a chemical crossing a uh, cellular membrane. Uh, typically, the, f the uh, ways that chemicals cross uh, that membrane will uh, result from diffusion. Uh, that requires a concentration gradient that we have a high concentration on one side of the membrane and a low concentration on the other. Sometimes we'll have um, a facilitated diffusion where there will be some uh, uh, membrane surface uh, carrier uh, proteins that actually facilitate the transport of these chemicals across the membrane. Uh, these, uh, for instance, an example of this is glucose transport. And then we have active transport where we actually use cellular energy via ATP to help actually uh, uh, transport or change uh, chemicals. Uh, some examples of these are uh, endo or exocytosis or phagopenocytosis, the swallowing up uh, that cells do in terms of their uh, particular metabolism. Now one of the things we need to kind of have a good recognition of as we undertake uh, an analysis of uh, absorption of toxicants is uh, the structure and form of the cell membrane. And this is fundamentally, as you recall from your biology, chemistry, and biochemistry classes, made up of a phospholipids and a bilayer uh, that forms these uh, micellar membranes. It's very important that we understand that uh, um, these, in fact, are chemicals that can have chemical reactions, okay? Even though they are structural, um, they still can be interacted. And so, for example, when we talk about oxidative stress and free radicals and free radical damage, this lipid bilayer uh, can be attacked, uh, can have an oxidative attack by some free radicals, which cause a defect in the layer and perhaps rupture of the cell membrane, and again, can potentially release those uh, somewhat destructive contents or disrupt critical uh, resources within that cell that are required for life. Now, we need to understand that for absorption that there are four basic types of cells in the human body. Uh, the epithelial cells, and they particularly make up things like covers and linings and uh, secretions, uh, very, very important uh, barrier, first layer barrier. There are connective cells. Uh, they give us support and energy. Uh, uh, there are muscle cells. Uh, they allow us to move. And then the nervous cells, uh, the nerve cells will uh, yield electrical impulses, transmit uh, information, the conduits, so to speak, of uh, our neurological system. 
The two types that are most important in toxicology are the epithelia and the nervous system cells. In the epithelial, we have a classification, if we break down on this graphic, of what these uh, cells look like in terms of their, their structures. Uh, squamous shells are, uh, cells are uh, flat. Uh, simple squamous uh, tend to actually run in, in rows, and stratified squamous tend to run in sheets. Uh, we'll have cuboidal and simple cuboidal and columnar type cell shapes in the epithelial. And these are uh, specific for different types of tissue throughout the body. They help us uh, manage particular uh, uh, processes that occur in that organ or organ system. In terms of nerve cells, uh, you'll find uh, that they're um, made up uh, primarily of neurons um, of various kinds uh, that allow for uh, the development of a neurological response. Uh, they uh, connect to each other via dendrites, uh, and these dendrites uh, have a synaptic uh, cleft across which each cell can communicate uh, to one another. And typically in neurotoxicity, uh, we impact uh, either the delicate uh, balance of chemicals that allows the development of charge or polarization of the cell or in, within an individual cell, or we disrupt uh, some of the tissues uh, the, that make up the cell and the cell membrane, or we uh, upset the balance of the enzymes and the critical neurotransmitters that allow the cells, the neurons, to communicate with each other. And we'll talk about neurotoxicology in one of our lectures. In terms of uh, the human body, we have 11 organ systems, the integumentary or the skin, the largest organ uh, in our body, the skeletal, the muscular, the nervous system, the endocrine system, the cardiovascular system, the lymphatic system, the digestive system, respiratory, urinary, and reproductive systems. Each one of these can be the target of intoxication. In terms of adsorption, this is the process by which toxicants cross this epithelial cell barrier. And so this is the critical first uh, uh, transmembrane movement in terms of the cascade of effects of toxicosis. And so what affects absorption will affect toxicosis. We talked about and introduced the concept in terms of the initial concepts in toxicology lecture about all the different chemical manifestations of toxicants and how those manifestations, physical state, uh, like a gas or a liquid, its polarity, its pKa in terms of its ionization, uh, its KOW, its octanol water partition coefficient, all of these chemical phenomena can affect absorption. And absorption, therefore, affects absor the exposure. The exposure will affect dose. Dose will affect the size of the toxic response. And so now you have the connectivity between the chemical and the disease manifestation. The routes of absorption um, is, are primarily integumentary or percutaneous, dermal, if you will, respiratory, and digestive. These are the three routes of absorption that are, we are primarily concerned with uh, in toxicology. And so we have to have a good understanding of the physical structures and also the cellular makeup of those physical structures in terms of understanding routes of absorption. The integumentary system route is our skin, our hair, nails, mammary glands. Uh, it's the largest organ in the body, as I said. It's made up of the epidermis, the dermis, and the hypodermis. 
The epidermis is avascular. Um, it's the outer one. It means it doesn't have a blood supply. It's made up of the keratinized uh, stratum corneum that's about oh, 15 or 20 cells thick. Uh, it actually provides uh, maximum toxicant protection. If you work around chemicals, it's a good idea to keep the skin, especially of your hands, in good shape. Uh, cracks in your epidermis, uh, cracked skin will allow more uh, potential absorption uh, via more potential exposure. The next layer down is the dermis. This is highly vascularized. This is where we have our nerve endings, so we have a lot of them in our hands, but in our skin in general, it's the touch that we have. Um, the uh, hair follicles, the sweat glands uh, are in the uh, dermis. In the hypodermis, we have the connective and the adipose tissue, the support tissue uh, that gives us our good looks. Now, this gives you a kind of a graphical representation of what skin looks like uh, in two-dimensional. Here we have the stratum corneum, the dead cells, if you will, that are out there, and we shed these on a regular basis. Uh, that's a part of the epidermis followed by the dermis, uh, this uh, vascularized area, and then the subcutaneous uh, hypodermis tissue that actually has uh, a lot of the uh, support structures and major blood flow capillary systems that provide the nutrients for cell replication and skin growth, but also provide a mechanism for transport of toxicants away from uh, this barrier uh, and into other areas of the body in a systemic intoxication. This gives you an idea of a quick case study in terms of skin lesion and how chemicals can uh, have dermotoxicity of some variety or another. This is an unfortunate Kenyan child uh, that found a pretty beetle. Unfortunately, this uh, very attractive beetle was uh, of the uh, genus Brachius, Brachinus, uh, that is the bombardier beetles. Bombardier beetles have uh, uh, defensive mechanism uh, that they have the mixing chambers in their body. Uh, they actually are, are very good at chemical warfare in terms of uh, predator relationships. Uh, this, these two mixing chambers they have, uh, if they feel threatened, uh, they actually squirt out this particular toxin. It's uh, a very high temperature uh, exothermic reaction, so it's a hot fluid. It's a quinone-based uh, toxin, and uh, you can see from this uh, young child, it's uh, not a nice wound to have. And so this is a shooting uh, insect venom. One of the major uh, routes in terms of rapid intoxication is the respiratory system route. It's rapid because we've got that system of air. We uh, breathe uh, fairly rapidly, uh, and we have extremely high the uh, efficient exchange of uh, atmospheric chemicals, primarily oxygen and CO2 across our respiratory membranes. It's made up of uh, stratified squamous epithelial tissues um, on the skin, but in the respiratory system, it's a squamous epithelium with ciliated columnar and cuboidal epithelium. Um, this allows for the development of uh, non-keratinized, very soft tissues, but it's ciliated, and it gives us what's referred to as a mucociliary escalator. Uh, if you've ever been in a dusty environment for an extended period of time and find yourself coughing for the rest of the day, and you're coughing up uh, uh, what, a, what looks like uh, dusty material, your sputum is dark, uh, 
Uh, it actually is the inhaled dust that has risen up with these cilia, the little microscopic hairs, um, that is cleared over a period of time. And we've all have experienced that at one point in time. The respiratory system uh, is made up the nasopharyngeal, uh, essentially the first part, uh, then the tracheobronchial, and then finally the pulmonary system in terms of its relationship with exchange with your vascular system. This is a, a diagram, a cartoon of the respiratory tract. Here you can see the nasopharyngeal uh, aspect of the system, the tracheobronchials, essentially hardware, it's pipes uh, going down into the pulmonary region. Uh, the, we have uh, these uh, uh, going off into the primary bronchius, the distribution tubes into the, uh, the, from the major freeways into the minor back roads, the bronchioles. The bronchioles will feed uh, the uh, alveoli, um, high surface area tissues that allow for this membrane transport. The membrane transport uh, is actually through uh, the arterioles and the capillary function in terms of exchange, gaseous exchange, back and forth in terms of uh, carbon dioxide and oxygen from respiration. You can respect that uh, there are many other chemicals uh, that uh, have high enough vapor pressure, whether it is on inhalation or exhalation, uh, that are high enough vapor pressure to cross those membrane thresholds as well. You can respect that the respiratory tract is, in fact, one of the routes of elimination, potential elimination of toxicants that have sufficiently high vapor pressure. In terms of the respiratory system route and the nasopharyngeal, it's our nostrils, our nasopharynx, our oropharynx, and laryngopharynx. There's hair and mucus in there that allow for trapping of uh, greater than five micron particulates. Um, it's really important in terms of risk assessment that uh, we uh, protect ourselves from particulates that are smaller than that because there is not a good mechanism to remove those. They actually get trapped uh, down in the tracheobronchial area, the trachea, the bronchi, uh, the bronchioles, and the uh, cilial action down there. The luminal mucus can trap those two to five micron particulates and water-soluble aerosols and gases. And so that particularly uh, can have uh, an effect because uh, it doesn't necessarily uh, reverse. It doesn't climb that mucociliary escalator. And in fact, some of those small micron-sized particles are actually the ones that can do a tremendous amount of damage in terms of the manifestation of diseases such as silicosis and asbestosis. Uh, these are small, uh, solid particles that will get trapped uh, in silicosis because of size, in asbestosis because of the conformation of the particle. Asbestos is a needle-like particle. It's very hard for needles to actually uh, be resolved via the mucociliary escalator. And so there's uh, a tissue damage phenomenon in terms of asbestos exposure. In the pulmonary exchange area, we have the alveoli. These are extremely high surface area, maximized for gas exchange with the cardiovascular system. Uh, in terms of the uh, membrane, uh, if we were to actually take this extraordinarily high surface area lung tissue in, the, in an adult human uh, and uh, lay it out flat in terms of its surface area, it would cover uh, the, in terms of the estimated size, about half the size of a volleyball court. 
And so this is a very large-scale surface to allow membrane transport of volatiles. Because of the rapid uh, uh, influx of, uh, of respiratory chemicals, it is a potential rapid route of intoxication uh, because it is highly uh, managed in terms of allowing for uh, membrane transport. This gives you an idea from a um, dissection point of view of what lung tissue looks like. This is a dissection I did on a bovine uh, lung lobe. Um, the idea was to, to just uh, dissect this uh, uh, laterally um, uh, in terms of the, the uh, feel of this particular tissue, the bronchus bronchioles. Uh, this is a very uh, cartilage-type uh, material, very hard uh, structural material. Uh, piping uh, is probably the best way to describe it. It takes a lot of heft on a pair of sharp scissors to actually cut through uh, this material. Um, whereas the uh, pulmonary regions of the lung where gas exchange happens uh, is a, a very soft and almost gelatinous uh, type uh, material. And so you get the structure in terms of this sort of material and then the, the softer parts in terms of the other parts of uh, the lung material. This gives you an idea in terms of the substructure on a close-up here uh, where we've got the, the uh, bronchus leading off to the bronchia, bronchi and the bronchioles uh, through these little portals here in terms of the substructure that uh, allow for transport of gases and exchange of gases throughout the whole mass of the lung tissue. And so that gives you an idea that it's a very efficient gas transport system, high surface area, high connectivity with all the area, the ability for us to sustain toxic damage if we are exposed to uh, a significant uh, uh, toxicant is, is uh, pretty significant. Myself and my own experience as a scientist uh, during my PhD studies, uh, I was exposed to uh, fluorine gas uh, by uh, uh, another student uh, that left a gas tank uh, open. Uh, the only reason I knew that I was being exposed is I started tasting the metal fillings in my mouth uh, what in fact was happening, uh, little to my knowledge at that point in time, was that the fluorine gas, F2, was actually reacting with the water in my lung tissue, creating hydrofluoric acid. And had I not gotten out of there because I started feeling quite ill, quite sick, uh, that uh, I would have sustained a significant amount of uh, tissue damage and lung damage. Uh, it was met with a full hazmat team uh, and uh, it gives you the idea that when you are working around chemicals, you should be very cautious and careful. Perhaps in recent history, one of the largest uh, impacts of uh, respiratory toxicology happened in Bhopal, India, uh, where as many as 10 and some estimates 20,000 people uh, suffered uh, in a respiratory illness uh, from a plasticizer chemical put out from uh, a uh, union carbide plant. Uh, it was a result of human error uh, at the plant, at the factory. Uh, a couple of valves weren't set the way they should be, and a huge amount of uh, uh, mortality and morbidity in that particular case, and I believe that was 1984. Another case study uh, more recently, and this happened in May 2000, was a fixed obstructive lung disease in workers at a microwave popcorn factory. You may have read about this or heard about this in the news. 
Um, these reports uh, come to us uh, not only through the news, but this is the CDC publication, Mortality and Morbidity Weekly, that reports on uh, clinical manifestations of disease, and uh, quite often that's toxicosis. And so what this is, is I've given a few case studies here uh, this semester that are reports out of the CDC Mortality Morbidity Weekly. In this particular case study, this is in Missouri at a microwave popcorn factory. For those of you with a background in food science know about food additives and food flavors. Uh, in fact, in microwave popcorn, they try to give it the butter flavor. As it turns out, uh, in, in this uh, time period, there was an uh, occupational medical uh, medicine physician that actually made a report to the CDC to uh, about eight cases of uh, fixed obstructive lung disease. Essentially, these individuals had uh, exceptional levels of scarring on their lung tissue, and four of these particular workers were actually uh, uh, on a lung transplant list. Um, they did some background investigation and found that uh, these individuals had all worked at this one factory between the years of 1992 and 2000. This initiated an occupational health investigation, what was causing the, uh, the uh, potential disease and how much disease was being caused among the workers. And when they did their epidemiological assessments, they found that the workers in that particular factory were about 10 or 11 times more likely to have lung disease uh, than uh, the standard population. This is an indicator of uh, a problem. Uh, in terms of analysis of the problem and follow-up, um, they assumed because it was respiratory that it was associated either with chemicals or particulates that were in the plant of the, atmos uh, the atmosphere of the plant. Uh, they reduced it down in terms of the 100 or so volatile organic compounds that were in the plant air to compounds such as diacetyl, uh, which is a compound of flavoring that is used uh, to flavor the uh, butter, uh, to give it a butter flavor in the microwave popcorn. This is a, a ketone. They found uh, the mean air concentration about 18 parts per million where it was actively being used, uh, and then uh, lesser concentrations throughout the plant. Uh, as it turns out, there is no PEL or uh, permitted exposure level uh, for this particular chemical compound. Uh, the um, suggestion was, uh, although there was not a dose response, that these chemical compounds in the flavoring were causing this uh, very high level of scarring uh, in this and in fact, uh, the change in terms of plant operations included enhanced uh, protection of workers uh, from uh, volatile species, and that was done by personal respirators and also by uh, increasing air, air exchange uh, throughout the plant and air exchange over those particular processes. If we transition now to the digestive system route in food toxicology, this is obviously one of the most important routes if we talk about the interaction of food and potential for toxicosis. This route involves the mouth, the oral cavity, the esophagus, the stomach, uh, small intestine, the rectum, and the anus. As it turns out, the residence time uh, can determine the uh, uh, site of toxicant injury. Uh, for the mouth, we have a relatively short amount of time. Uh, small intestine, it's a relatively long amount of time. And so if this is a material that is going to have, uh, uh, require a fair amount of time to have a toxic interaction, it may impact uh, intestinal linings and not necessarily what occurs in your mouth in terms of a um, 
incidental injury. The absorption of toxicants can take place anywhere, but much of the uh, whole structure in the digestion system is actually designed for absorption, absorption of nutrients and all of those molecules that are required for metabolism of those molecules of life. And so that happens in the gut. And so this is a system that has highly facilitated transport for some chemicals, uh, opportunities for recirculation in terms of enterohepatic recirculation. So this is a system that's set up for absorption and therefore has a potential in terms of intoxication. Uh, there was a clinical case report uh, uh, a couple of years ago about an individual uh, that was uh, depressed, um, had uh, uh, suicidal uh, inclinations, uh, went out and drank a, a bottle of liquor and chased it with uh, uh, essentially what amounted to kitchen uh, uh, cleaner uh, that was a lye-based uh, material, strong base, uh, potassium hydroxide. Uh, potassium hydroxide actually uh, will break down uh, cell membranes very rapidly. If you've ever had base on your hand uh, in the laboratory, you notice the slippery feeling. Uh, it kind of feels like soap because, in fact, it's making soap out of the fats that are in your skin membranes. Uh, so it's dissolving your skin. So this caustic actually had a dramatic impact on this poor individual. Um, he actually was rescued after he uh, uh, attempted suicide. Unfortunately, it was a little bit too late in terms of some of the tissues, especially the esophageal lining and uh, his stomach. And uh, at that time, in terms of uh, uh, bringing this uh, unfortunate fellow around a recovery, about all they could do would, uh, was to remove his esophagus, uh, remove his stomach, and actually take the undamaged part of the small intestine and actually connect it externally uh, to his rib cage underneath the skin. And so he eats in small amounts and actually has to work this particular uh, um, part of his body to, to affect absorption of the nutrients required for life. A fairly dramatic demonstration of uh, intoxication with a caustic material. The gastrointestinal tract as we know and understand in terms of introductory uh, anatomy, uh, we've got the mouth and uh, the esophagus, essentially uh, some piping to allow us to connect uh, to the stomach where we uh, first have the uh, primary digestion systems. Those digestion systems are uh, involved with liver and liver enzymes, uh, enterohepatic recirculation via the gallbladder and discharge, and we'll learn more about that. Um, but then we uh, enter uh, the intestinal tract the uh, uh, large intestine and the small intestine, finally through uh, fecal elimination through the rectum. The digestive system route, uh, in terms of differentiation of tissues, we have the mucosa. The mucosa is the outer lining. This is a vascular. It's typically squamous cell or columnar uh, cell epithelium. In some cases, uh, the uh, structures uh, are uh, villi and microvilli. Uh, the microvilli and villi actually aid in absorption. They're high surface area substructures. We'll see that in a micrograph here in a moment. We also have a submucosa, the layer below that mucous membrane um, in, in the digestive system. And that's where a lot of the exchange starts happening. We have high blood flow. We have lymph system uh, interface there. Outside of that, we have the muscularis, which allows for that peristaltic movement that allows for the passage of food materials through the digestive system. 
Uh, outside of that, we have uh, the, the casing, uh, the serosa, uh, that contains all of this uh, uh, organ substructure in the gastrointestinal tract. In terms of the intestine and its structures and substructures, you see from this uh, uh, cartoon here, uh, the small intestine. It is made up of some substructures where we have the villa and the mucosa on the surface and the submucosa. The villi themselves, these high surface uh, area structures are highly vascularized, again, optimized for nutrient absorption. Uh, they are uh, vascularized not only with the uh, blood system, but also with the lymph system because we have a tremendous amount of immune function that's happening in terms of responding from an immune point of view to pathogens that might be in the food system. So the immune system there has to be very good at recognizing chemicals, toxicants, uh, uh, even potential allergens or pathogens, uh, good ones from bad ones. Uh, obviously, we want to absorb nutrients. We want to absorb uh, proteins. Uh, we want to uh, be able to uh, absorb all of those molecules required for uh, metabolic uh, resources. Uh, so this is a particularly well-orchestrated symphony of absorption, if you will. The small intestine mucosa, uh, actually this is a microscopic histology slide. Uh, since I think this is my first introduction for you uh, on histology, these are two-dimensional representations of three-dimensional cells or organs. And so I always tell students next time you're cutting up a cucumber, Try some experiments on cutting it in different directions and seeing what it looks like. If you cut it long ways, it has a dramatically different representation than if you cut it in small thin chips uh, crosswise, uh, which will give a round representation. So this is the lengthwise representation of these villi, and it gives you some indication of the cellular structure on the periphery that aids in membrane transport and absorption of nutrients as well as toxicants. Well, let's finish up today with a case study. In this particular case study, this is an herbal supplement. Uh, this is a case study associated with uh, Jin Bu Wan toxicity in children. This is an incident report in Colorado 1993. These three incidents I'm going to report came from Mortality Morbidity Weekly. Uh, these are unrelated instances uh, in terms of uh, they all had different aspects, but they all were similar in that they contain young children. Uh, they dealt with the young children and uh, exposure to this particular Chinese herb. Now, traditional Chinese herbal products are widely available in the United States. It's a greater than $1 billion market. Uh, because these are marketed as herbs uh, and uh, not as drugs, they do not have FDA oversight. There is some concern because people actually do take these as drugs or for a therapeutic value. They have sometimes very highly potent uh, natural products. Uh, in this case, uh, many uh, times they're alkaloids. Uh, Jinbu Wan is manufactured in China, and the stated ingredients are uh, polyglycinesis, L-alkaloid, at 30%, and starch at 70%. Um, it's an analgesic. It's used as a pain reliever. It has uh, a, a known kind of morphine-type uh, 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 responses. 
Uh, it as well is a known hepatotoxin. Uh, people have uh, taken this product on a regular basis and come down with uh, acute and chronic hepatitis. And so this is something that uh, should be well out of the hands of children. Uh, one of the problems associated with these types of products is the variability in terms of what's in it, uh, not in terms of just the active ingredient uh, that it's labeled for, but other plant uh, or herbs uh, that might be co-administered uh, beyond what's on the label. In this particular case representation, patient one, this is a 13-month-old boy that uh, actually was lethargic and breathing abnormally. Uh, when found uh, about 20 minutes after ingesting about 60 of these uh, tablets, uh, this particular child presented with uh, CNS, central nervous system depression, and was uh, responsive only to painful stimuli. In other words, uh, didn't really have uh, the normal responses uh, that we should have in terms of stimuli. Uh, he was lethargic, uh, he had uh, very relaxed muscles, uh, no muscle tone, uh, and he had uh, transient bradycardia, rapid heartbeat. Um, he actually was uh, treated with activated charcoal. He was uh, intubated uh, uh, and uh, actually uh, survived the episode uh, and had no real follow-up problems in terms of the short term. In this particular case, uh, patient number two, a two-and-a-half-year-old girl, was lethargic and breathing abnormally. Um, she was found about an hour after ingesting uh, about 17 of those tablets. Uh, she was unresponsive in respiratory depression. Rapid heartbeat uh, was treated with atropine. Uh, she had uh, CNS depression uh, symptoms, uh, diminished respiratory weight, which she required intubation. Uh, her condition improved, and uh, uh, she actually uh, vomited out uh, the tube that was uh, uh, actually placed to help her in her respiration. Um, she had gastric lavage, uh, also known as getting your stomach pumped to recover the tablets uh, that were in there, um, about eight hours. Uh, urine serum were negative for other th typical compounds associated with drug intoxication no permanent uh, conditions in terms of the short-term follow-up of this patient. The third patient in this particular case study, a 23-month-old girl, was lethargic. Uh, parents found her about an hour after she had about seven of these tablets. She was uh, transported uh, to the emergency room. Uh, she had uh, her stomach pumped as well. Uh, they administered charcoal uh, and a cathartic to kind of make her vomit out as much of this material as she could. Uh, she was observed and then discharged, and again, no, no permanent uh, uh, impact to that. In terms of the case follow-up, um, this is as important uh, to uh, not only to track the individuals associated with these cases, but also the toxic agent. Uh, in this particular uh, series of cases, an analysis of the product, uh, identified uh, that it was 36% concentrated by weight, uh, levotetrahydropalmitine, LTHP, which is uh, the active alkaloid not in the species identified in this particular bottle of herbs by another uh, plant species. Um, it has morphine-like properties. Uh, each tablet contained about 28 milligrams of this uh, particular material. Uh, but no other alkalide uh, was, was uh, identified uh, or from these, these particular plants. 
So what that does is give you some background uh, as we tie up the end of uh, our absorption lecture. It gives you some background on absorption of chemicals as we start this progression of events from sources, pathways, receptors, and, and uh, as well controls within the body uh, that allow us to get kind of a full-scale uh, uh, representation of toxicology. The next time, uh, next lecture, what we'll do is we'll try to discover what happens next uh, in terms of uh, routes of toxicology. Once it's crossed those membranes, it is going to be transported and distributed uh, throughout the organism and perhaps stored uh, or metabolized. Uh, until next time, we'll see you then, uh, and uh, thank you very much. Bye.